0: Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Good morning, everyone, and may the third be with you. Uh, We're continuing on in this series, Original Church, where we're taking this just little vignette of the early church that we see at the end of Acts 2 and kind of these fundamental practices that they're in that's helping them to raise up in maturity to be the body of Christ, to be the way. Um, And what we've been exploring here is we look at the early church less for replication to do exactly what they're doing and the way they're doing it, but more. Is inspiration. What does it mean for us to be faithful now in the 21st century in the same way that they were seeking to be faithful in the first? So um, as we've been doing each of these messages, uh, I want to begin by reading this passage again, and we're going to be reading it in different translations each week just to kind of get some different flavor. Um, Today I'm going to read to you from the King James Version, uh, Jesus' preferred version of the Bible. And um, one of the things I love about the KJV is every sentence does the thing that we were told in eighth grade English that you're not supposed to do, which is that you start a a sentence with the word and. Um, But here we are, Acts 2, 42 to 47 in the King James. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together. And had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, which is just a delightful phrase. They eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved. So in the first uh, message in this series, I looked at the apostles' teaching and how everything flows from the gospel that the first followers of Jesus were preaching. We looked at specifically what Peter was preaching that was responsible for this gathering of these, these new, this new way of understanding what God is doing through Jesus. Last week, my friend Xavier and I um, talked about fellowship, that fellowship is where the theology of what the early apostles were teaching was now put into practice as we're learning to be the new family of God. And we're kind of bumping up against all of these new and different people. And the third element that we find in this list is the breaking of bread. And that's what we're going to be focusing on today. And so if you didn't already, I want you or someone that you're watching with to, to go quick right now and get something that you can celebrate communion with at the end of this gathering. I have a nice little piece of ciabatta and some Pinot Noir, but maybe the best you can do right now is a tortilla and some 2% milk. Whatever it is, God is gracious and understanding and I think he will still bless it. I would also love for you to grab a notebook or just something that you could be taking notes because we're gonna have um, some moments of prayer in a little bit they are gonna help us to really uncover what it means to approach God's table um, with a sincere heart. And so this is kind of my, my main thesis for you this morning. The breaking of bread keeps the story of Jesus at the center of our faith when actions can speak louder than words. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we testify that you are here with us in this moment, that although we are separated uh, by space, we're still here in this moment uh, that our, our spirits are together here as, as a representation of the body of Christ, as city beautiful church. God, I ask that even in this moment, even now, you would bless every dear one that is listening to this message, that wherever we're at, whether we're outside and on a walk or if we're sitting um, in the living room with our family, whatever we're doing, um, that we would just take a moment to acknowledge that you are with us, that you are for us, that you are not against us. And so, Lord, as we continue on today, we give you permission to do whatever you see fit. Speak to each one of us what we most desperately need to hear this morning. We pray all these things through the strong name of our Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I want you to close your eyes, and I know some of you have little kids running around, and maybe it's not a good idea for you to close your eyes. So just whatever you can. And I just want you to imagine this scene from a first-century church. So it's a couple decades after the uh, crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, who has been considered the the Messiah, the anointed one by those who have ears to hear and recognize that God's doing a new thing. It's been a couple decades and, and all around the known world, There's a message springing up within the Jewish people that's now incorporating in Gentiles who hear it as genuinely good news. And these people are being gathered together by these apostles, these early church leaders. And so you're invited to a house uh, to to participate with members of the way, these people that recognize that Jesus is the new king and that his kingdom is bursting forth in the midst of the old one. And you, as you enter into this house, you recognize that this house belongs to a very rich woman um, who is uh, a Roman heiress, uh, it works in... Um, works in different industries in the city. And as you enter in, you start to engage with all these different groups of people. There's there's a room on the other side of the courtyard where someone is uh, reading out loud from one of the letters that they've received from one of the super apostles. His name is Paul. And he's he's reading it out loud, and people are asking questions, and they're kind of engaging with the text. You go out through the courtyard, and there's this large table that's being set for a meal. And everybody's coming around this table, sitting down shoulder to shoulder, to share this meal. And as you take your seat, you begin to recognize some of the people. You see the local tax collector who's, who's a Jew, um, but he's despised by other Jews because he seems like a little bit of a sellout. And you realize that the person right next to you is this, this local Roman official um, who a decade prior was notorious for persecuting uh, followers of the way. But now he's sitting next to you. You recognize someone walks by as, as a slave uh, to a wealthy landowner nearby uh, who comes and sits next to another person of power. You begin to notice men and women intermingling in ways that you never thought possible. In the corner, you see two people dialoguing and you realize that one of them is a former slave who's been freed by their Roman master for now they're brothers in this way. And the other is a zealot, someone who was this revolutionary uh, Jewish political advocate seeking a violent overthrow of Rome, and they're dialoguing in the corner. And you begin to to participate in this meal with all of these different people from all these different walks of life. And then at some point within the meal, one of the leaders stands up and he begins uh, to read from a scroll, again, one of these letters of this, this early apostle Paul that you've heard rumors of, but you've never actually had the pleasure to meet. And as he's reading this story, he kind of lifts up a cup, a cup that, that you're familiar with from the Passover tradition uh, in, in the Jewish calendar. And he begins to talk about how this cup has this new significance for us as, as the blood of Jesus, this evidence of the new covenant, this new thing that God's doing. And then he takes uh, a loaf of bread, and he says that this bread, this is the new life that's given to us in this man, Jesus. And he begins to pass this bread, and it goes around the table from, from from man to woman, from rich to poor, from slave to free, from Jew to Gentile, and everybody takes a piece of this bread and eats it. The same cup, the same bread is at the center of this worship tradition. That's a little bit what it would have been like every time that the people of God gathered in the early church. And it's very easy for us, like I've said, to look back at the early church and, exa- and, and kind of feel like they've got it all right. They're, 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 they're doing it perfectly, and we're completely a mess in the 21st century. But that's not entirely true, that even at the beginning of the church, there was this level of uncomfortability in what exactly is it that God is doing through the Spirit of Jesus as He's gathering together this new people for His kingdom. And there was two traditions that became very central to trying to help gather together these people under a common gospel. The first was what was called a love feast. We might even consider it like a potluck today, but where perhaps a rich person is providing a meal and gathering together people who believe in Jesus to share together, which was very revolutionary in the time. Roman citizens used to like to be seen as being generous, but in reality, there would be these different rankings of tables. And their close friends and the kind of social elites would have one table with one meal and then they would have another table that was was meant for poor people but so that more like they could be seen like the kind of people who care for the poor but in a way that they didn't actually have to associate and these christian love feasts in the early centuries were radical in the sense that everybody sat at the same table and ate of the same food and drink But there was also a meal within that meal, a practice within that practice that was called the Lord's meal or the common meal, not common in the sense that it was ordinary, but it was what was being held together. And this was the moment where, like in this story, um, a leader would stand up And would kind of bring us back to the centrality of the good news of Jesus. And they would begin to pass this cup and this bread as this symbol that's reminding them of the central story of our faith. And Christians in the first century would do this almost daily as they're gathering together, that they'd share these love feasts, but then they'd participate in the Lord's meal. And later on, as the church grew, they began to coalesce around doing the Lord's meal weekly at these gatherings on the holy day, on Sunday. And so I want to make three brief uh, kind of observations about what breaking of bread, specifically as the Lord's meal, the meal within the meal, the practice within the practice, what it really teaches us about being a fellowship, the value of what it gives us. So the first is this. When we break bread together, we proclaim the gospel through a sacred symbol. One of the words that we use for this Lord's meal nowadays, some of you maybe are familiar with it from your own tradition, is the word Eucharist, which is a Greek word uh, that means gift. That this is a gift that we have received into ourselves. And I think that's a really beautiful angle for us to understand that what we're doing when we come to the Lord's table and we participate in the Lord's meal is that we're receiving the gift of the gospel. Now, if you remember from the very first message in this series, this is how I kind of framed the gospel as the apostles taught it. Number one was the proclamation that Jesus is king over all, through all, and in all, and the world is now radically different because of that proclamation. That Jesus has overcome sin and death by allowing evil to do its worst in crucifying him on the cross, but that he takes all sin and death and he buries it. And then on the the third day he raises, he rises again uh, to, to prove that he is who God said he is, that he has overcome sin and death. And that proclamation that Jesus is now king is followed by an invitation. And that was the second part of what Peter is proclaiming: that first we repent. We change the way that we've been thinking about things. We come home to God and what He's doing now. And then we're baptized. We're baptized from our sins, forgiveness, and we're baptized into new life in the Spirit. And so there's a way to understand the Lord's table that helps us to recognize that we are proclaiming that central story of the gospel and making it new again. There's one other passage in Scripture uh, that specifically talks about the Lord's meal, and it's in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth who are really struggling with both of these meals. They're struggling with having a love feast that's genuinely egalitarian, but they're also struggling with their attitudes towards the Lord's table. And this is kind of central to how we understand uh, the table when we come to it by the words that Paul has here in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 26. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. I think this is what's so beautiful, how how Paul sums this up. He says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And I love that the Lord's table, coming to the table, is an act of obedience to do something that Jesus asked us to do in remembrance of him, who he is, what he accomplished for us in his life, death, and resurrection. And I love all the little verb imperatives that Paul puts in here. This is something that you do. It's something that you eat. It's something that you drink. And through all of that, it's something that you proclaim, that you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so it's this sacred symbol, it's this action that we participate in that's telling ourselves and everybody around us the story in a way that more than just words can acknowledge. I think that's so powerful for us. You know, many of us growing up in different traditions have different ways and different attitudes towards the Lord's table. For some of us, it's something we do every week. For some of us, it was something that maybe we just did on Christmas and Easter. For some of us, we got these little cups of juice that had a little wafer on top of it and it was passed out while you're sitting. For others of us, we came up to an altar and it was put in our hands by the priest. For some of us, we dunk. Uh, For some of us, we eat and then we drink from the same cup. I'm a fan of full immersion uh, Eucharists personally. It's just a little joke for you Baptists. I have all these different ways of doing it, but recognizing there's this central truth that we are proclaiming something, we're telling a story through the sacred symbol to ourselves and to those around us. I think some of us grew up with this idea of memory in the way that we think about memory now in our own society, which is we do this action to remember this thing that happened once upon a time ago, that 2,000 years ago, Jesus did this thing and now we're just remembering that. And let's just kind of put that at one extreme. I think the other can be that some of us grew up in traditions where it's almost like a magic trick. Like you have to wear the right clothes and you have to say just the right words and you have to do the rain dance and then something magical happens to this bread and this cup where it becomes the body of Jesus and it does something to us. But we have to get the the words right. A couple years ago, I was talking, my dad had a couple interns uh, that were working for him at their church in Virginia These are really neat guys. They both uh, grew up in the Pentecostal world and kind of through seeking a deeper, more robust faith, they found the Anglican church, but they just really ran headfirst into kind of like the smells and the bells and, and some of the formality, these things that they had perhaps been hungering for in their previous tradition. And they had come to this place where they, they, the, 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 the Eucharist, the Lord's table was of paramount importance, uh, to worship, which I think it rightly is, uh, in the Anglican tradition, but they had gotten to this place where it was all about just getting it right and doing the thing. And um, my, my dad wouldn't necessarily be one of those kinds of pastors. And I remember with this, just a little glint in his eye, he said, "Ryan, why don't you tell them the way that you do communion at your church? This is my church in Nashville. And I explained it and they kind of got wide-eyed and they thought, but you don't, you don't have a priest praying over it? Like it can't be communion unless the right words. And I thought that was so interesting because it wasn't necessarily the way that I had been raised. And later on, I was talking uh, to my dad's associate pastor who was this fantastic wild man from Scotland. We were talking about this phenomenon of the Lord's table and what is it and what's happening. And, and he said something so profound to me. He said, you know, your father and I would be more of this tradition to say, I don't need to know how it works. I just know that something happens to me when I come to the table. And so if you were imagine for a second, at one extreme is memory. We're just doing this thing to remember something that happened a long time ago. And on the other extreme is magic, we're doing a magic trick in order to get it to be this thing, there's this beautiful creative tension in the middle called mystery. And mystery says, I don't have to be able to explain it. I just know something happens to me when I come to the table, when I participate, when I receive the gift of the good news of Jesus that's demonstrated in this symbol, because I do believe something happens to us when we come to the table time and again, and it's the ongoing work of salvation. Not that we do this in order to earn our salvation, but that we open ourselves up time and again to the salvific work of Jesus, that what Jesus did 2,000 years ago is continuing to work today, and that we participate today in anticipation, as Paul says, of his coming when all things shall be restored. And one of the things I think is so profound about this symbol being at the center of our participatory faith is it reminds us of this central truth that for God, matter matters, the physical of the world, that the word became flesh, not just an idea, that God inhabited physicality and through that he saves the physical material world, that our gospel isn't simply an idea, but it's something that has a flavor, it has a taste to it, it's something we participate in with every part of who we are. And so we proclaim the gospel through the sacred symbol of the Lord's table. The second thing is when we break bread together at the Lord's table, we bless all other tables. Another word that we use for the table is holy communion. And I love that word communion because it's kind of a synonym for fellowship, what Xavier and I talked about last week, that we are communing with God. We're in fellowship with him at the table, but we're also in fellowship with one another. Last week when we were talking about fellowship, I uh, mentioned this quote from Stanley Hauerwas. He says the church is where God is making a family of strangers and how in reality that can be very, very difficult for us to enter into a new family that we are bound together by Christ and not by the normal little ways that we judge people. And so when we participate in Holy Communion as the Lord's people, What it does is it confronts our prejudices and our tribalism and the bitterness and unforgiveness that we might have within our own hearts as we come to the table to make manifest the reality of what it means to be the Lord's people. I don't know if you've had a chance to see this wonderful film on Netflix, The Two Popes, talking about Benedict and St. Francis. But there's a moment where it's telling this, or not St. Francis, oh my goodness, he's not there yet, Pope Francis. But there's this moment um, where Pope Francis, uh, Father Begoglio in his uh, earlier life, um, is is celebrating the communion in a church um, in Argentina where he's from. And he looks over and the the attending priest who's there to help him out comes through the door, and it's this man that he had severely disappointed a decade prior. They'd had a huge falling out, and there was a lot of unforgiveness and bitterness. And in the in the film it's so beautiful because there's this moment where they kind of recognize that they have to not only lead the congregation to the table, but they have to participate in it together. And so during this moment where they have to share the peace before they begin the process of coming to the table, they step up to one another and with tears in their eyes, they embrace each other and they begin to weep. And it's this moment of recognizing that all these years of bitterness and unforgiveness have to melt away in order for them to come to the table together. And this is not too dissimilar from the story, again, that we see in 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul is calling out the abuse of uh, this love feast and the Lord's meal. In verse 17, this is what he says In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt, there have to be differences among you to show which of you has God's approval. I think he's probably being sarcastic there that they're ranking themselves according to who's a little bit more favored in the eyes of the Lord than others. So then, when you come together, it's not the Lord's supper you eat. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. When we take the symbol seriously, it begins to confront all of our assumptions of who's in and who's out. And I know there have been moments for me and maybe moments for you in our community when we come to celebrate communion and you're coming to the center of the room to receive the bread and the cup and you look across and you see that person. And there's that little, it just squeaks out for a moment. You go, how come they get to come to the table? Like what have they done to to earn the right to come to the Lord's table? And I think that, that is God doing something in us as we come to the table as his people time and again. He's rooting out of us our prejudices and our unforgiveness and our bitterness to make us his people bound together by his spirit. And this is what's so powerful is that when we enact a symbol together as the church, when we come to this table together, then when we leave this place and we go out, it transforms all other tables we begin to look at the tables that we share in our homes and in coffee shops and restaurants differently. I've always used the analogy I think church is meant to be like an art museum, that you go to an art museum to look at art, to learn how to see so that when you leave, you see everything differently. And if we allow the Lord's table to teach us how to see people differently, it begins to bless our other tables. And our tables become the space where we begin to preach the gospel through action. I love how Shav was talking about this last week, like to enlarge the table, to say you have a place here and it is marked out for you because you matter. And we demonstrate the good news of Jesus through enlarging our tables of welcoming others in. And that brings me to my third and final point. When we break bread together, we are reminded of who we really are at the core, the beloved of God. Several weeks ago, I was talking to a friend of mine who was really struggling with this idea of being worthy, of being loved. And she was kind of communicating. She knew it intellectually, but she just felt like there's so many things that she's working through in her life right now and that she's struggling with. And she said, you know, I just worry that all of this stuff that's on my plate just makes me unlovable. And I responded, isn't it nice to know that you don't get to decide if you're unlovable? And I want you to think, actually, I'm going to do this. I'm going to come right down here. And I'm going to look you in the eye, and I'm going to say that again. Isn't it nice to know that you do not get to decide if you are unlovable? That's for other people to decide. And I think there's something powerful to that, that we judge ourselves and who we think we are and what we're worth and where we find our value. But we, act, at the end of the day, go, don't get to determine whether or not we are lovable. You have every right to resist love. But you can't prevent yourself from being loved. And who you are is not up to you. At the core of your value, of your worth, you don't get to decide that because you belong to God and God gets to decide who you really are. And because of Jesus, he looks upon you as his beloved. The core of your identity is a gift to be received, not something that you can earn, not something that you can create by yourself, but it is a gift to be received, that you are the beloved of God. And when we come to his table, we're allowing that reality to wash over us again. That Holy Communion proclaims at the core of everything that we are, we are the beloved. Several years ago, we were in a worship gathering here and I was getting ready to come up and to lead us into Holy Communion. And I was standing in the back of the room and I was in prayer and the Lord gave me this vision. It was a reminder of my childhood when we were little growing up in Michigan. And in the winter, many of you from up north will, will know this very well, when you go outside to play, it's a process to get on the snowshoes and the overalls and the jacket and the scarf and the gloves and the hats and all of this stuff so you can... Just go out and and have fun and play, and it's three feet of snow, and it's the best. It was a wonderful way to grow up. But in this, this vision, I remembered that whenever m- my parents would call us inside to come to dinner, to come to the table, we had to walk into the house, but we had to stop in the hallway and we had to begin to peel off all these layers of stuff because we couldn't come to the table kind of with all of this stuff on us. And so it would take just as long as it did to put it off of unwrapping and unzipping and pulling and stepping out. And then we'd be in our thermal underwear and we'd finally get to come to the dinner table. And the Lord showed me that this is what it's like when we come to his table. That we have to peel off all these layers of the false self, the things that we so easily find our identity in, that they're not always bad things, but so easily we can allow those things to define us. And that's what that's the problem is when very good things we think are where we find our identity, but because they're transient or they're, they're hollow, we find ourselves sold short and we forget that we are the beloved of God. And so I actually wanna lead us to the table right now. We're gonna do this digitally again. This is by the grace of God. This is what we've got to work with. And I think he's very understanding. But I wanna lead you through a couple minutes um, of reflecting on some of those things that we need to peel off in order to come to sit with our father at the table, to allow him to speak over us, our true identity as a gift that we receive and it's not something that we earn. So I'm going to pray and I'm going to have a couple prompts, just kind of different areas of false self, false identity stuff. And I'm going to give you about a minute in each one to just pray whatever the Lord highlights to you, where you might be placing a false sense of confidence or you might be finding your identity in, and then just to to symbolically within your own heart, to, to peel off that layer and to hand that thing to Jesus. And the beauty is that when we leave the table to go back out into the world, there's so many good things that we pick back up but we remember that they don't actually define us. So I'm gonna give you those moments just to kind of strip away all the false identity to come to the table as the beloved, nothing more, but nothing less. And so God, I ask in this moment that you would be with each of your dear ones, that you would bring to us a spirit of peace that passes all understanding so that we can come to your table perhaps naked and afraid because we've allowed some of these things to define us for a long time. Give us the courage to let go of the falseness of the temporary things so that we can hear you speak over us who we truly are at your table. So Lord, first, we want to confess to you that we've believed that we are what we have that we've placed our identity and our security in money, in material goods, in relationships. We've placed our confidence in our abilities, our intellect, or our good looks, or our talents. But that we've grasped onto something else and we've believed it's what I have that defines me. So just take a moment before the Lord and just reflect What material things do I place my confidence in that are not God? your mercy, hear our prayer. God, sometimes we believe <clears throat> our value is what we do. But we believe it's about performance and task. God, we believe that our jobs define us. Our titles, the letters they become before and after our names define us the roles that we play in our family, in society, in our community, that's what defines us. We're sorry, Lord, for believing that our identities are based on performance and task. So God, would you in this moment just reveal to each one of us how have we defined ourselves by our productivity, especially in this season of needing to slow down? Do we know our worth when we don't have anything to do. So just pray anything that comes out of you where you've found your identity in what you do. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God, we've confessed to you that we've believed that our identity is based on what other people say or think about us. That we've taken your right to define us the way that you see us, and we've handed that off to friends, to family, to people that we think are cooler than us, are more popular than us, are better than us. And God, we, can, we confess that whenever we allow other people to define us, there can only be disappointment and disillusionment that leads us to bitterness and that leads us to unforgiveness because people did not meet our expectations. So Holy Spirit, would you speak to us now? about any part of our inner world where we have believed that we're defined by what others say and think about us. Is there any unforgiveness or bitterness in my heart? And who is it against? Teach me, Lord, how to forgive those that I hold bitterness toward. in your mercy, hear our prayer. God, we confess that we've all fallen prey to tribalism, where we've taken these little characteristics of human beings that that define us, but we've used them as dividing lines against us. God, that we have been subject to uh, being nationalistic, that we have defined ourselves by our political party, that we've defined ourselves by our gender superiority, that we've defined ourselves by our socioeconomic class, that we've defined ourselves by our race or our ethnicity. And in doing so, we've judged others, that we've created a world where it's us and them, where we've said our team is worthy and they are not. God, we confess to you anywhere where we have abused the beautiful diversity of the human family and made it about ranking and valuing people So right now, Lord, would you speak to each one of us? What are the divisive categories that we've held onto too tightly? Who are the people groups that we've judged as them that are less worthy of your love? Lord in your mercy hear our prayer. God we confess to you that we have allowed fear and anxiety to take control of us because we can't control the world and where you've allowed that fear and anxiety to cloud us to what you're doing the bigger picture of your gospel story where we've retreated where we've fallen in on ourselves where we've tried to control things that, and take things into our own hands when we should be submitting and trusting them to you. So Holy Spirit, would you show us within our own hearts right now, what are we fearful of? What are we anxious about? What parts of our stories are we trying to control too much instead of letting you control them, submitting those things to you? Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. And now that we've peeled off the layers of the things that we think might define us, we get to come to the table, maybe feeling a little bit exposed, maybe feeling a little bit anxious because it's harder for us to figure out who we really are. But the beauty is that we get to come to God and allow him to speak to the deepest part of us. And so we offer you... Our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, O Lord of all, presenting to you from creation this bread and this cup. We pray you, gracious God, to send your Holy Spirit upon these gifts that they may be the sacrament of the body of Christ and his blood of the new covenant. Unite us to your son in his sacrifice that we may be acceptable through him, being sanctified by the Holy Spirit in the fullness of time, put all things in subjection unto your Christ and bring us to that heavenly country where with all your saints, we may enter the everlasting heritage of your sons and daughters. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, the firstborn of all creation, the head of the church, and the author of our salvation. By him, and with him, and in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. And finally, together I want us to pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. The gifts of God for the people of God.